before anyone sets into a, a design partnership, the expectations on both sides should be very clear. The communication channels should be very clear. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Emily Heath. If you don't know Emily, you probably know of Emily, as she's a very prominent figure in cybersecurity. She has been a CISO for a major airline as well as for a popular software vendor. She has had several board positions. She's worked in law enforcement, and at this point, she is now a partner at a VC firm as well. Our conversation today is about design partnerships, and Emily is uniquely qualified to discuss this one with me. Emily, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So you've been a CISO three times in a variety of industries, including some very large organizations. And you've also worked in law enforcement. It's a few boards. We just mentioned all this, right? You've done a lot of this stuff with all this experience. I think it's safe to say that you've got both the practitioner and the vendor perspectives kind of under your belt here. So I guess before we dive into the topic du jour, I, I've got a question for you having straddled this fence because I always love talking to folks who've done them both. What's, the first question is, what should practitioners know about vendors? Ooh, isn't that a good one? <laughs> what should practitioners know about vendors? I think the first thing is that, like anything, they come in all shapes and sizes. So you've got really, really mature vendors all the way down to a little italy biddly startups that are just figuring out who they're going to be when they grow up. Um, you know, the, the bigger companies, they operate so differently to, to some of the startups. I mean, they've got a whole infrastructure behind them. They've got customer support teams, system integrators. All of these things that, you know, at the end of the day, they all want to win your, win your business. They want to win your business and they want to keep your business. But depending on the size of the company, that can look very different. And the motivations can actually be very different as well. Um, you know, you think about some of these big companies, big vendors that we've got, they're publicly traded. They've got the street that they've made promises to that, you know, pounding down to every single last quarter at the end of the quarter makes such a big deal for them. For startups, it's a little bit easier. You know, for early stage startups, they need, they need customers. They, they want the experience. They need to understand how people actually operate. So uh, while everybody wants to win your business and everybody wants to keep your business, I think the motivations are very different. I, I like that. And that's going to segue nicely into what uh, we're about to talk about here. But I guess let's pivot the question around. We'll do this as well. What should the vendors know about the practitioners? Ooh, we're all busy people, really, really busy people. We get a lot of requests. Practitioners get an absolute ton of requests. So I think my number one advice always to any, any company that I work with is you've got to be a really good listener. You've got to understand the market. You've got to be a really good listener. Getting to know the CISO is great, but the CISO generally is not your buyer. Right. The CISO is the CISO's not the person that makes the decision on what tools we have. So you know, get to know the personas of the people who are going to be using your system. Take them out for the state dinners. Don't take the CISO out for the state dinners. They've had enough. You know, it, it, they, you need to really, really focus on who the buyer is uh, because nine times out of 10, probably 10 times out of 10, that person's not going to be the CISO. Right. That's, oh, what great advice. That's, you know, this is something I've learned my way too. And I've tried to tell vendors this, vendor friends of mine that, you know, Odds are one of my lieutenants is going to be the one calling the shots, right? Like, uh, like I'm totally. not, I'm not going to do the research and decide which EDR solution I, the CISO, I'm going to purchase and deploy. I'm going to go to my person who's going to ultimately own that and be in charge of that and say, which one do you recommend? 
And unless they come back recommending, you know, something made out of bubble gum and popsicle sticks, I'm going to go with their recommendation. Exactly. Normally, you know, I, I have a, a tried and tested model like most CISOs do. You, you know, if you, your, your team come to you with a great solution for something, that's great. But I want to know, have you looked at at least two or three different vendors? And, you know, you, you think about the requirements on the rows and the vendors on the columns and you look at the requirements and this is how we choose what 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 uh, what vendors to and partners to go with but that's not usually the CISO's decision the CISO will take all the cues from their teams because the teams are going to be the ones that are using it yeah the whole idea as a good leader is you hire people that are better at what they do than you are and then you get exactly. out of their way and let them be better at it get right out of the way. that's what you've hired them for <laughs> so true all right so this all segues very nicely into our main topic today um which is design partnerships so you were a CISO at huge international airline and historically one thinks of those large enterprise CISOs as the ones who only buy from the established players in the industry or I'm going to go ahead and say god forbid from the Gartner Magic Quadrant only. Um, and yet you have chosen the design partnership route in your career. And you work with small cyber vendors to help shape a solution that meets your specific needs while giving them a good logo. Yeah, I would say, well, first and foremost, I think as, a, as an operator over the years, I've always seen it as part of my job to stay close to the emerging technology. Because sometimes you get head down too much and you're too focused on you know, you've got your roadmap, you're trying to get things delivered, you're navigating politics, you're navigating all kinds of stuff, especially in big organizations. Uh, it's really important to keep an eye on what the emerging tech is because there's, it's, it gives you an indication as to what's happening in the market. It gives you an indication of what's happening in the field. So the best way I've ever found to do that, obviously, we all do our regular reading every morning. We stay close to all of the, our usual channels, but being part of this startup, uh, innovative community, has it's also helped me flex my entrepreneurial muscle over the years. You know, in a big organization, you don't really have the the nimbleness sometimes to move as quickly as you would like to. So staying close to it was always I I, I encompassed it as part of my job was for me to stay close to the technology. Now your question was around specifically around design partnerships. Why would you want to go into design partnerships with small organizations and you know, there's a, there's a number of reasons why I see this as a huge win-win. If you think about startups, they're funded to solve your problem, right? They are funded specifically to solve a problem. Now, you're not going to go do design partnerships with everybody, but if they're solving a problem that is very meaningful to you, then I'm intrigued. I want to know how you're looking to solve this problem because chances are, if I consider you as an extension of my own team, remember, design partnerships don't cost anything. They don't cost me anything. I get through the legal stuff. I get through NDAs and, you know, we partner. It maybe costs a little bit of time and resources for, from my team, of course. But these startups are so hungry to solve your problem that, you know, what's the alternative? The alternative is to put internal resources on something that, you know, three engineers these days might cost you a million dollars, right? Three, en three engineers on a problem can cost you a million dollars easily. Why wouldn't I leverage this, this, uh, this concept of having design partnerships that can work as an extension of my team uh, to, to really help me solve these problems. So for me, it's been uh, an absolutely incredible way. The other thing I will say is the only other alternative of not doing this, if you're not, if you don't have the money uh, and the resources to do it and spend the million dollars on three engineers is to not innovate. And that can't be the answer either. <laughs> like you can't not innovate. So I think long gone are the days where we had to wait for, for, companies and vendors to be, you know, massive, much bigger companies. It's a chicken and an egg situation, right? You, you're not going to, 
do business with them until they're bigger, but nobody will give them a chance. This design partnership model paves the way for a very low risk, no risk type of win-win situation because it doesn't cost you as a practitioner anything. Uh, what you get from it can only be goodness. There's no strings attached. You don't have to buy it. There's no strings attached at all, but for this, for the startup, it is hugely beneficial for them to get to understand how people actually work with, uh, with their solutions, with their tools. So for me, uh, it's been nothing but a great experience. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So, so that's kind of what uh, inspired the approach. And I think you've already listed some of the benefits of the approach too. I'm going to put on the vendor hat now. Um, so, so we clearly are hearing the benefits from the practitioner side. For the vendor, I think it's, hey, I got a big logo is probably a really big one. And, and, and number two would probably be something along the lines of market validation, right? Like absolutely, you, you're trying to solve a problem in a vacuum. And at some point you have to go up and meet with somebody who actually has that real problem really for real in the real world, really, and partner with them and, and learn like, oh, we thought we'd solve it this way. Oh, that's not working at all. Let's shift the gears and, you know, make it solve it this way. Um, I think those are probably two big things, but there is one gotcha there. And I'm just going to speak from a, this was from a vendor perspective. I won't name which company it was. Uh, but I actually call this the Kodak phenomenon is the name of it that I made up. I was at a small company, had just started getting big, and their first big logo was the Kodak company. And Kodak asked for these big company demands and things because this is back when Kodak was big. And Kodak wanted it this way and that way and the other and have this feature and the other feature. And this little startup ran around in circles doing everything Kodak wanted because they were their first big logo. And then flash forward three years later, Kodak is no longer a customer, and they've got this dearth of features that nobody wanted but Kodak, and now they're having to support them and sustain them and maintain them. And so being, your, being allowed to, you know, allowing yourself to be steered by one big logo is, I guess, my one caution for the vendor in the design partnerships. Couldn't agree more. Um, so, yeah. So what's, what's the caution then for, um, for the practitioner? You mentioned there's no strings attached and there's no downside, but I guess if, you, if you're betting on a startup pony, some of those ponies don't make it to the finish line. And now you spend a lot of time and you have to unplug and undo and redo and find a new design partner and start over again. Is, is that really the only tripping hazard there? Yeah, I mean, it's a two-way street, right? I mean, like you mentioned for the, for the vendors, they're like sponges. Like they, they, these startups, they are like sponges. They hang on your every word as a practitioner. And I have seen now more in the VC world, of course, I get a much more behind-the-scenes look at what, what's happening within the vendor community and the startup community. They will spend hour after hour after hour dissecting a conversation that they had with a CISO. <laughs> they literally, they will be around the whiteboard and they'll say, ah, but Jimmy said, that's not what Jimmy said. And they will literally dissect that conversation. And I think as practitioners, we underestimate sometimes just how much value we can truly add. But be careful what you say and be careful what you ask for, because they will spend morning, noon and night trying to solve that one little requirement that you've asked for. Um, in order to please you because they want to please you, right? That, that's the business that they're in. They, they want to do everything for everyone, especially when they're, they're smaller. But uh, literally, they are like sponges. They are listening to every single word that you say. Now, of course, as you say, the, the downside for them sometimes is that they can hone in too much on trying to please one or two customers. And, and it's a balance. And I, I see this balance all the time. And it's not just with the smaller startups, but even some of the ones that are probably pre-IPO later on in their in their evolution, they still, it's a constant trade-off between what the customer is asking for and what, what they want to innovate with, right? Because it's a, it's a two-way street. You can't just do everything for your customers 
At the same time, you need to be able to innovate yourselves to present in front of customers things that they haven't even thought of yet. So uh, there's a constant trade-off, a constant trade-off behind the scenes. It's, I think pretty much every company I work with uh, on the vendor side, they're all painfully aware of this trade-off because at some point, nobody wants to say no to a potential customer or, or even a, cust- a paying customer. You want to keep that customer happy. Right. But you don't want to also commit your entire company down this one path for this one journey for this one, you know. So so that that ties, that, 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 that makes me want to unpack something else here, which is the innovation piece of it, right? The whole point of design partnership is innovation. And you mentioned chicken and egg earlier. I, I feel like there's a chicken and egg phenomenon with the innovation aspect of it as well. This idea that, you know, one particular customer having the problem is articulating the problem statement way better than the theoretical, you know, product marketing and product management folks could ever possibly do in a vacuum over on the vendor side, right? In other words, hey, here's a real customer who's actually suffering the problem. We sort of anticipated, started to think through, started to build a product around. So there's a certain innovation for sure coming from the customer, at least on the problem statement side. And then in theory, the vendor responds with some some innovation and some ideas. But in a true design partnership, that kind of becomes a circle, doesn't it? Like, like, like it becomes difficult to say where the innovation actually came from. Isn't that sort of the goal? Yeah, it is. And, and it's because the, the best design partnerships are truly very open, honest conversations. If something's not working, tell them it's not working. You got to be, you, you have to have this really open dialogue. And, and in those early days with design partnerships, and remember, design partnerships are normally done when a company is still in stealth. They've not even launched past their A round yet. So the companies are still in stealth. Right. So, so they're still getting to know the world. They're still you know, trying to figure out how, where they fit in the whole ecosystem. Um, but this, this really healthy dialogue, I've seen, I've seen design partnerships go really well and I've seen them go really badly. And it's because of the relationships and the expectations before anyone sets into a, a design partnership. The expectations on both sides should be very clear. The communication channels should be very clear. And um, I think, you know, yeah, where does the innovation come from when you're working so tightly together? Normally what will happen in a tactical fashion in a design partnership is that there will be regular meetings, usually at least once a week uh, with the, between the teams, sometimes multiple times a week, depending on how big the problem is that they're trying to solve and, and how important and critical that is to the company, uh, not to the startup, but for the practitioners more, more importantly. Um, and between them, you know, they iterate off of each other. Uh, Pre-pandemic days, I remember doing a lot of design partnerships that were, we'd spend a day around a whiteboard or a half a day around a whiteboard. And it was the, in person, it was the best time that you could get. It's really difficult to do that on Zoom. Um, so a lot of these startups do travel out to see their, their core design partners because that design interaction that you get just like you do with your own teams when you're figuring out your roadmaps and what to do next and which fire is burning more than the other one. Those human interactions are just so critical in these types of relationships for them to be, uh, to, for them to be successful. Um, and I think both parties get a lot out of that. You know, both part, I see both parties get a lot out of just the conversation that, that leads to the solution that they're going to build. It's that journey of the conversation you, you know, I learn through these conversations because not everybody thinks the same. And uh, it's, it's a valuable process, I think, for both sides. Let's pause right there real quick for a word from our sponsor. Do you want to make cloud security risks a no-brainer? And remove friction between your security and dev teams? Well, Daz takes the pain out of the cloud remediation process using automation and intelligence to discover, reduce, and fix security issues. Lightning fast. 
Daz prioritizes alerts, shrinks backlog to actionable root causes, and improves mean time to remediation from weeks to hours. And best of all, keeps your developers focused on what they love doing most, coding. Visit daz.io slash demo and see for yourself. That's D-A-Z-Z dot I-O slash demo. I love that. I love that. And I'm thinking here, you know, with my practice and my clients, like half of my clients are cybersecurity startups. Um, the cybersecurity industry obviously knows me, right? I mean, that's kind of, you know, so obviously I'm going to get a lot of clients from that space, but it's fun because I get to do a lot of design partnership type stuff. I'm meeting with heads of product. I'm meeting with CTOs. I'm meeting with heads of engineering and they're asking me crazy questions about, well, what if we did it this way? Well, how would that work, Mr. CISO? You know, and we get into these conversations. It's fun. It's so fun. It's so much fun. So that, that brings up another question, which is kind of a, let's step back and look at the vendor ecosystem, right? I'm thinking of all these, uh, I don't want to name names, but there's a bunch of these sort of cyberscapes and maps and things out there that are like, here's the 10,000 buckets and then the 10,000 vendors in each bucket, you know, massive chart that if you printed it out would cover your entire wall and you still would have to get a magnifying glass to read the logos. You know, is that massive ecosystem contributing better or hampering this design partnership paradigm? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it, uh, the world we live in is complex, right? And I actually, there was, I had uh, a CEO ask me this question a couple of weeks ago. I said, why, why are there so many security tools? And, and it's a complex question to break down because wherever there's technology, there's security. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, your IT folks are shipping out PCs. Oh, got to secure that. You got developers creating code. Well, got to secure that. You got people spinning up cloud. Yep, got to secure that. And every one of them needs some kind of technology and, and, and solution. So I don't see this world shrinking in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I think it's going to continue to evolve, uh, even if you look at the, the cloud movement, right? It's changed the way we work. The way that we work is so different. Having a 30, 60, 90-day SLA on anything is unacceptable in the cloud. The cloud's now. The cloud's instant. So the way we used to work is very different. And so we've got all these new solutions that are now solving all these new problems. But guess what? We've still got all this on-prem stuff too. So we still need all the older solutions. I, I guarantee probably five years from now, we'll be having the same conversation because now everyone will be on blockchain. And the tools and, and solutions that we built now, or the ones that we built a few years ago, were not built for blockchain. So now we have to go build new systems. So this constant evolution, I, I think it's, it's not going away. As it pertains specifically to design partnerships, um, Fewer is better. You can't, you can't do more than one or two, a maximum design partnerships effectively at any one period of time. Um, because, you know, you don't have infinite resources. None of us have had that luxury, right? Ever. Uh, even in economics times of strength, we've never had uh, an abundance of resources to go do all the things that we want to do. So, um, you know, I, I would caution against doing too many. I think I've only ever done one, perhaps two, if they were in different areas of my org. At any one moment in time, um, because you know it's not it's not realistic to try and think that you can accomplish any more more than that. I think there's a lot of talk about consolidation. There's a lot of talk about cyber, you know, security solution consolidation. Um, I don't personally see that happening in terms of different tools because the way we work is different. But I do see the consolidation of the data now starting to happen into different places. So. You know, there's different companies out there now that are able to absorb inputs from these great security tools, but help you make sense of them in a different way. So it's almost, you know, a consolidation of the output, which is, you know, a little bit aside to what we're talking about. But 
but it's, I, I don't think this ecosystem is going to go away, but as it pertains specifically to design partnerships, I would caution against doing more than one or two at most. Okay. Okay. So, so this, this ties into the next thought, which is you mentioned, we still have on-premises, right? Like, yay, we're in this modern world of cloud, but we still have on-prem. Well, back in the day, um, and I'm old enough to remember the day, you had massive software application development teams in-house cranking out monolithic legacy on-premises apps for the company. And of course, 10 years later, the one that was designed to be used for three years was still in use. All the original developers who had built it were long gone. And you were stuck with this beast of a thing that you had to, you know, patch band-aids and, you know, just trying to figure out how to maintain it. And, you know, a security issue would come up and everybody would panic. It's time to migrate it to a modern OS and you can't. You know, I can think of a million and one stories about why in-house development was bad. But I want to contrast that with this design partnership model for a moment because it's almost like you're still doing in-house development, but you're outsourcing the negatives while insourcing the positives. Is that kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I have had times, like I said, where I've literally had to put a number of engineers on things to build things internally. Now, I'm not against building things in-house at all. And because it depends on your business, it depends on sometimes there are very specific nuances it would be silly for, for a vendor to go build that specifically for your set of use cases. So there's always going to be those edge cases where you're going to have to build around your tools. Maybe you're consolidating into a database or you're doing something that is uh, internally built. I, I, with the amount of solutions that are out there today, uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to find one that doesn't fit, you know, 99% of your use cases. Um, so, so there's always going to be a little bit of a, um, a little bit of, in-house development that's always done, I think, for, for any company. I, I think so too, but I but I think the monolithic in-house development is dead and what we see is glue. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What gets developed mostly is glue, right? Yeah, like it is, but you know what? You know who the biggest offenders are at, at continuing to build stuff internally is the tech companies because they think they can build it better than anyone else. <laughs> the tech companies oftentimes... I know some CISOs that have gone into some very well-known big companies that are technology-focused, and their first struggle is to try and buy and not build because, you know, they've got great talent and amazing engineering talent. Uh, but my personal preference is build where you need to build. Um, but you get, for me personally, I've just always got much faster traction buying the solutions. Oftentimes, the complexity, as you say, is the glue is that the actual connective, the connective tissue between them is oftentimes where you, you do your own custom development. And, and, you know, total tangential thought, but I'm seeing more and more cybersecurity products come out with APIs, regardless of their specific function or capability. And I think that that API revolution is mandatory. And with it, the glue becomes less hassle for the practitioner, right? Like if you've got strong API and can make this product talk directly to that product, you're writing less glue yourself, right? You're, yeah. and the the connective tissue becomes be intrinsic. A, they cannot be standalone solutions anymore. I mean, it's just, the, it's just, it's not practical. It's not practical for them. It's not practical for, for the customer. Um, these use of APIs and a lot of, you know, this is the beauty of this cloud revolution that we're in now is that you can, some of these solutions, you literally switch them on. You don't have to Im you don't have to implement anything. You just switch it on. The I APIs are so easy to do uh, that I lo I love the speed of that kind of revolution because it's it's definitely helping people like us be able to do our jobs a lot faster. 
and it, it comes at uh, it comes at a at a price too sometimes because oftentimes it only solves half your problem when you've got all this on-prem stuff as well it's like it's still only solving half my problem it's better but it's still i still got all this legacy stuff I and and it's funny i i know a lot of folks um good friends at various cyber companies you know that 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 i talk to and know um and I'm always challenging them with, you've got this brilliant cloud strategy. What about the on-prem? Like we all, like innovation equals not on-prem is the mindset of the industry. And yet the on-prem is still there. It's still there. And so every time somebody comes up with something cool in the cloud, I always challenge them with, okay, now do the exact same thing on-prem. Oh, that's so much harder. We'll have to do, yeah, okay, we'll start doing it. You know, they start to rattle off the list of things that they would have to do. Well, get on it then because the on-prem is still there. I have this conversation with, uh, with our companies, the CyberStarts companies all the time. Have this conversation because it's there's a reality that it's okay to be cloud first. I'm all in favor of being cloud first. You will stand stand things up much faster. But CISOs and security teams still have a very complex on-prem network that they still need to to be able to to secure. So find ways you don't have to necessarily build the exact same capability as you're building in the cloud, but find ways to meet them where they are. So that you can at least look at the the, the uh, entirety of that ecosystem in one place. You know, it's very hard to have different tools to go do different stuff. So uh, I couldn't agree more. There's a reality there. Yeah, there's there's sort of drag, dragging the on-prem behind as the toddling little brother at least acknowledges there and hold his hand, right? Even if you're not serving him the, the the same meal, you know, he doesn't get to sit at the big kids' table yet, right? Um, at least serve him something. He he deserves a little something to eat. Um, all right, so so the minuses on the in-house development versus the minuses on the design partnership, I, I feel like they're almost all the same. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like the pluses we've already discussed here, but but think specifically about the minuses. Like what's bad about in-house development? Again, people leave. Um, you're dependent upon a thing. Um, you know, are, are these the same minuses when we do the design partnership or are we taking on a second set of minuses? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I don't think there is as much heavy lift in a design partnership fair, for the practitioner, fair. right? There's, there's, there's very little heavy lift and, and you're leveraging the extension of these companies to go do that work for you. And like I said, that's what they're funded to do. That's what they're focused to do. And that's what they are driven to do is to go solve your problem. So there's, so there's the, the risk factor of what you put into the relationship uh, or into the other is very, is very, very different. Um, I've been, I guess I've always been very lucky. I've never done a design partnership with a company that's gone under. Oh, nice. Um, but, but, nice. But, but if you think about it, again, most of these companies, they're all in stealth, right? So obviously pay attention to who's funding them, right? And, and where they're coming from and who they are and their backgrounds, all the usual stuff that you would do any due diligence on any company. The same thing for, for design partnerships, but you can't have the same expectation of someone you're doing a design partnership as you would with a vendor that you're, you know, purchasing something from because there is, they're still in stealth. They're still figuring it out. There's a reason why it's a design partnership, right? It's uh, for them having, having your data in their systems and seeing how people interact with it and seeing how people use it is golden to them. And you, you can't, you can't do that. You can create as much fake data as you want, but seeing how real people are interacting with your solution and with the data and what you're giving them. Uh, it's priceless to them. And like I said, the flip side of that is this, the risk reward is, um, you know, there's certainly less risk and probably greater reward for you um, with a design partnership because you're, you're not investing a great deal yourself. Right. In, in and it, uh, 
It sure beats a focus group, right? Yeah, <laughs> a little exactly. more, a little more yeah, accurate than a focus group. It's living, it's living and breathing, so you can see it in real time. It's right there. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're pretty much in agreement. Then we like this design partnership model. We we believe in it. Um, so let's say uh, you're a practitioner and you're wanting to start down this design partnership road. What what's what's your advice for that practitioner? Get to know the VCs because remember, number one thing we've talked about a couple of times today already is a lot of these companies, most of them, are still in stealth. So you're not, they're not going to have a website. You, I mean, how do you find out about the companies that are in stealth? You find out about them through, through the VCs, right? Because they're the ones that are funding them. So there's many, many VCs and lots of them have CISO communities. And, you know, there's um, a lot more collaboration between, um, between practitioners and VCs and startups now than I think there ever has been. Uh, it's it's definitely seen to be a very positive relationship to to stay close to. So uh, there's lots of them out there. You can do your research. If any of your listeners are, are particularly interested in what that looks like, feel free to ping me and I can give you some guidance. I've navigated my way through it over the years. Um, you know, one one thing to keep in mind as practitioners is if you are advising for multiple VCs, um, just keep keep the conflict of interest at peace. Uh, top of mind for you, you know, we, we've all got to be, we all have to be very transparent. Um, I've never done anything without complete transparency of my company. And, uh, you know, you, you, you should do that because, um, it's at the end of the day, we've all got our own ethical responsibilities and that's first and foremost. So be very transparent with your company about what you're doing, but staying close to VCs can be a great relationship. And a lot of CISOs, uh, they, they ultimately, maybe they want to be an advisor for a company at some point, maybe they're looking to get on a board at some point. These are the relationships that you build uh, as through these communities. And, you know, it's uh, it, it can be something that's a long lasting relationship. It doesn't just have to be about, you know, one particular design partnership that you're interested in. You know, it's a two way street. This is a two way street at the end of the day. But we be very transparent about it and also make sure that if you're advising more than one VC um, and both of them have data security companies, you're going to have to recuse yourself from one of those sets of conversations. Right, because you, you you can't advise multiple VCs on the same thing. That that just wouldn't be the right thing to do. It's funny you bring that part up. This week's show, the show that drops in two more mornings. We're recording this on a Monday morning, so Wednesday morning this week. Uh, I've got a guest, and we're talking about the ethics of advisory boards. That's exactly what we get into, and transparency ends up being the key and most important takeaway exactly. from that show for sure. No, that'll be a great one. I can't wait to listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, I've got. I mean, think about it. I'm on multiple advisory boards. I'm partnered with multiple VCs um, in various and sundry ways on these, you know, on these different VC groups and things. I've got friends that are VCs, friends that are vendors, etc. I've also got my podcast sponsors, right? And all of that, like, I have to navigate all of that, and then and then think about the fact that I'm also still a practitioner, and I might be making a purchasing decision. Like, there's all those ethics that have to be like it's a it's a rat's nest when you're me. <laughs> it is. You you really have to. You, it's it takes time, right? You really have to be very conscious about every engagement that you do and, and whether or not you're, you're inviting any conflict by doing it. So, um, and like I say, I think for, for CISOs that uh, I know many, many CISOs who advise both for companies and for VCs. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a trusted community. It's trust to the core of this community and people, people will do the right thing, but uh, it doesn't, doesn't harm sometimes just to bring it up in conversation. I'm looking forward to the conversation on Wednesday because uh, I, I get asked a lot um, because I've navigated these kinds of situations many times, but my number one piece of advice is complete transparency. Yep. And that goes for the vendors too, right? That's the same advice for the vendors, not just the practitioners is, you know, hey, I'm working with your competitor, you know, like 
That's I'm targeting right. all the big banks, and you happen to be one of the big banks. And I'm also talking to your competitor down the street. Are you still willing to partner with me? Like that, that transparency has to be bi-directional for sure. It absolutely does. And you know, these the, the vendors also in this relationship, they, they have to listen very well. Right. The best relationships I've seen and the best ve- the vendors are always on the receiving end of the information. Right. But but also if they if they do if they they are working with multiple banks or whatever it is, you know, without naming the the banks because they're not allowed to do that, uh, they can say, we do see this in a similar kind of company as yours, and this is how we see them doing it. You know, it it actually can help the other side as well. So, but again, it's they they have to they have to be extremely good listeners. They have to uh, be aware of any conflicts on both sides. Yeah, and and it's almost the spirit of the ISACs, right? Like that, exactly. that's that's how the vendors yeah. need to approach it. Is I, I'm contributing to the overall security of the community. The same way an ISAC does, and that's why I'm being transparent. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, Emily, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I sure appreciate all your insights and inputs on this one. This is this has been great. This is going to be a well-received show. I can guarantee it. I wanted to thank you very much for coming on down to the ranch. Absolutely my pleasure. And uh, I look forward to listening to uh, not just Wednesdays, but all your future casts, too. These are incredible shows. I really appreciate them, Alan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>